0: Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy and Jeff Kopsetta.
1: This is John Daly speaking from the CBS Newsroom in New York.
2: The Japanese
1: have attacked the American naval base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, and our defense facilities at Manila, capital of the Philippines.
2: Senators and representatives, I have the distinguished honor of presenting the President of the United States. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and at the solicitation of Japan was still in conversation with its government and its emperor looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between san francisco and honolulu as commander-in-chief of the army and navy i have directed that all measures be taken for our defense but always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us
3: welcome everybody to the first live stream of the what's the skull podcast um uh, we've finally been able to make things work out and uh jeff was able to procure a location with internet that was conducive to a zoom live stream so welcome jeff first and foremost how are you
0: oh man couldn't be better this this is this is wonderful to be able to do this and and to, to be on video with you this is gonna this is gonna open our podcast up it's gonna be amazing
3: Yeah, this is something we do every Monday night uh, with my other podcast, the What's in Your Head podcast, and um, this has been something that I've been wanting to do for the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast for the longest time, but before having you... Um, it would basically be like watching somebody do voiceover work. When it's just me in a studio by myself, there's really nothing to watch. There's no video, there's no you know, it's just me stumbling through scripts. So I am so excited um that you were able to join us tonight and maybe this is something we can do on a regular basis. Now for those of you watching on Facebook, I do have to apologize for some reason not to go mildered down into technical nonsense. Um, the service we use to rebroadcast this would not allow me to add the What's the but Facebook page, so I simply had to share the YouTube stream. Um, but it, subscribe to YouTube, and you can see the live stream all the time. And if you head over YouTube now, you can also chat with us. But by the way, you should be able to see across the bottom that there is a phone number and a chat line that, um, well, is always available, but we were never to do able to do it on this podcast because I'm usually using the phone line to, well to communicate with Jeff. So... We're going to try another first tonight. If you're at home watching, uh, give us a call or text us at 239-932-8676. And you can either text us a question or ask us a question live time. Or even better yet, something Jeff and I have been dying to get with your all's involvement would be um, call and share your knowledge base with us. Um, obviously, not we all can't know everything about everything. So what a better time to, you know... Invite you to come share your knowledge on whatever particular topic we're talking about. But I think uh, tonight would be a great night to kind of let Jeff take the helm of the show because he knows more than anybody, at least in the last five days, because you've gone over the subject matter multiple times. And um, as you heard, today is the day after Pearl Harbor, so why not spend a little time? Um, We won't have to get into it right away, but we're going to cover a little bit of uh, Pearl Harbor tonight.
0: Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a good one because, uh, you know, like you said, this um, just being I don't know, it's like Pearl Harbor week for me. Sure. You know I mean, it you know, just that one day, it just doesn't do it justice. So, yeah, I've, I've done uh, multiple uh, speeches and uh, did a did a video interview at a Houston based TV uh, station the other day. And, uh, yeah, there's so much, so much going on right now that we could talk about. So you're just going to have to cut me off man, for sure.
3: Well, first and um, foremost, because this is a new format to this podcast, where are you at? Uh, this is the first time our audience is seeing the, the at computers podcast studio, but I got a green screen behind me and you can't see all the actual studio itself. So other than the fact that I'm in Florida wearing a Jeep cap because it's 41 degrees outside, um, <laughs> what do you, where are you at and what do you got going on behind you?
0: Yeah. So, uh, some of our listeners may remember, we've mentioned this a few times now, uh, a month or so ago, was uh, was elected to be the museum director here at the Highland Lake Squadron Air Museum. That's a squadron of the Commemorative Air Force that's based here in Burnet, Texas. There's a small uh, municipal airport here, and part of our squadron is housing uh, an SNJ-4, a PT-19, and um, we've got a C-47 on the way. Hopefully, you know, by uh, within the next few months. We have an air show scheduled in March, so hoping to get that bird down here as well to be nice to have another C-47 in the squadron. But, yeah, I'm just going to kind of quickly pan around. This is kind of our small, uh, humble uh, Highland Lakes Squadron Air Museum. It's hard to tell. There's a chin turret for a B-24. And actually over here, uh, way back in the corner, there's a Norden bomb site. Uh, There's about 1,200 artifacts uh, in the collection. So... Um, for a small town museum that you know is—it's only really been around since 1992. Wow! Um, it, it is quite impressive the collection that it has, and of course the hangar right here next to me, having the aircraft here right here on the runway really helps. Um, so we're open, and there's a lot of museums in the country, a lot larger than this, with with much greater uh, revenue stream than this that, that aren't not open. right. That, so this is really special to be able to do this, and it looks like I'll be able to uh, broadcast from here beautiful. every podcast that we do. So let's get used to this format.
3: Yeah, we can start coming up with a consistent day, so we can uh, yeah do live streams, and um, we can always bring a third party on. Um, we want to give you guys a little preview for something we're working on. Hopefully, it'll be the next episode. Jeff and I got together and we're like, what is something that we don't really talk about, whether it's us or just the community in general, when it comes to the history and things of World War II, because I don't know, we kind of like to talk about the things that aren't, you know, talking about a lot because everybody's already known that and no one, you know, they kind of lose interest in it. And so I think for our next episode or the following episode, depending on how things roll out, we're going to do an entire episode on the contributions of um, work animals to World War II. I think a lot of people think uh, work animals, that's World War I with the exception of the Germans because, you know, but no, across the platform, across all theaters on both sides, we relied heavily on animals, and so we're going to get into some detail. And we hopefully will have a guest on to join us to go into that detail. But we thought it'd be interesting to let's talk about the workhorse. Let's talk about the work animal, pack mules, whatever.
0: Yeah, and you know, just uh, just a little teaser on that on that episode. Um, oh gosh, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years ago, I got to go on an exotic hunt down in South Texas. And um, there was a particular animal that was threatening to hit the endangered species list. So of course, they had to knock him out while they still could. <laughs> so typically, it's like a six thousand dollar animal to shoot, which I got the uh, the opportunity to shoot one for three hundred dollars. There you was, go. It was a hard hunt, man. It was it was you know South Texas. I mean South Texas um, outside Foul Furious. You know, very close to the Brownsville area.
3: For those of us not in that area, what's the difference between a West Texas and North Texas and East Texas and a, as you said, a South Texas?
0: Well, um, to to give you an idea, to go from North Texas to South Texas is like Florida to Virginia.
3: Okay. (laughs) So So the hats get bigger
0: (laughs) in terrain. But yeah, so it's down. I mean, Brownsville is pretty close to the same, probably the same latitudinal line as, as Key West. So it's down there. Yeah. Um, anyway, so hot, you know, very hot. So we went in August. So it was really hard. I mean, you had to hunt these animals. And long story short, to get back to our episode, the animal that I got to get on was called a scimitar horned oryx. It's just a, a, a slightly different species than a little bit more popular gimsbach. But the story behind why scimitar-horned oryxes are, you know, now I think they are on the endangered species list, but why they were threatened for so long actually has a tie to World War II. So I'm really looking forward to getting into that. So there's an animal probably most people never heard of.
3: Yeah, right. And it
0: was an animal that was important during World War II.
3: And I'm so looking forward to that episode. Um, Tell you what, before we get into the Pearl Harbor thing, let's get a little um, World War II news out of the way early. Um, I shared this story yesterday. Um, yeah, I believe it was yesterday. Well, it came out on December 3rd. Anyhow, divers discover Nazi World War II Enigma machine in the Baltic Sea, Dateline, Berlin. German divers searching for the Baltic Sea for the, uh, for, for discarded fishing nets have stumbled upon a rare Enigma cipher machine used by the Nazi military during World War II, which they believed to be thrown overboard uh, when a submarine was being scuttled. Um, thinking they had discovered a typewriter entangled in nets off the seabed of Gettling Bay, underwater archaeologist Florin Huber quickly realized the historical significance of the find. I've made many exciting and strange discoveries in the past 20 years, but I've never dreamt that I would be one day finding myself recovering a legendary Enigma machine, he said. The Nazi military use of the machines to send and receive secret messages during World War II, uh, but the British uh Crypto ciphers cracked the code, helping the Allies gain the advantage in the naval struggle against the control over the Atlantic. Um, so it's just, one, first and foremost, the fact that the wa- that thing's preserved as well as it was under the water, I guess maybe because of the water temperature, and a lot of it's metal and iron, but you would just think with the salt content, it would have just whittled and rusted away. But from the photos are shown, it's, I mean, it's by no means uh, useful, but it's there. You can tell what it is it's just,
0: yeah. So is there, uh, has there any talk on displaying it publicly somewhere? I mean, is this something that people are going to get to see or is this, is it like eminent domain? He found it. He can put it in his attic and do whatever.
3: Um, How does that work? Well, it'll be interesting. I see. I, it's, I don't know what the German government's policy is towards artifacts like that. We know what their policy is towards, you know, a Nazi paraphernalia and dis- displaying a symbols. Um, but when it comes to this, like you said, is this, hey, you're free to do with it what you want. Hey, we're going to take it. Um, I think it's too early to say. I'm sure they've been contacted by many of museums uh, around the world, let alone in Germany. But I wouldn't be surprised. See, once again, I, I've never been to Germany, so I don't know what their modern day um, desire to talk about their honest role during world war ii so i don't know if they have museums dedicated to the weimar republic and nazism back then so i don't know that's a good question whether will it end up over in states and one of our museums will it go to private collection uh, the um uh, the article doesn't say i think it's a little too early so it'd be interesting to see where that thing ends up but first and yeah, foremost sure. as you know as somebody who's worked in multiple museums um that thing's going to take years just to get all the um as much as the ocean debris off of it to make it a displayable piece. Cause right now it kind of looks like a melted accordion. So it's going to, <laughs> it's going to take some years to get, get it to a displayable position, but yeah, it'd be interesting to find out where that goes. It would suck if it went to a private collection, you know, no. it, I would, hopefully it does go to a museum, but what museum and where would be um, an interesting thing to see how that all plays out. But I always find it so interesting when there's fines like this all the time because and something like this i mean this isn't like unexplored ordinances that was made upon the billions i mean this is these things were you know few and far between because they were a top secret device and so to see one <laughs> uh, being found in 2020 um so close to germany it's just uh very exciting
0: absolutely absolutely it'd be interesting to know where it was dumped overboard because you know i mean it's 80 years of you know the uh being underwater it it, who knows where it's starting they may have dumped it off somewhere in the south atlantic
3: yeah (laughs) yeah the the tidal the ocean tides could have just carried it
0: yeah yeah
3: yeah i'm trying to see um yeah they really don't have uh the crew about 50 something no that's just history of the um enigma machine the enigma device which looks like a typewriter consisted of a keyboard and wheels which scrambled messages Although several hundred thousand machines were produced. Okay, crapping on my point about the rarity. See, watching the movie, the U571, you think these things were, you know, a hundred, but apparently no. See, we're learning something. Although several hundred thousand machines were produced, only a few hundred were known to exist. So they were produced, maybe not completed. Maybe the part, that's probably what it was. Probably a hundred, several thousand parts were made. They were just never... Assembled to completion. But yeah, so only a few hundred were known to exist. They sell at auction for tens of thousands of do- euros and uh, find out more, uh, to, the fine, uh, made by the workers on behalf of WWF, um, aiming and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. There's no, sadly, there's no say where it's going, but once again, it's been, it was six days ago that this happened. So I'm sure their phones are blowing up and the emails are going off. Probably more emails than phones. Who uses phones anymore? But, um, I know we keep threatening to get to Pearl Harbor, but I am. I wish I was had your day. Let <laughs> me Just say, do you want to talk about your find, or you want to hold that under your hat for a while? Cause I, well, it,
0: it, it depends on which find you mean. I mean, I could, I could just show this off right now. Um, because you were saying on a previous episode that, I don't know, what was it? 50, 60 bucks. You, you got your, your smoking deal on your may West. And yeah. This is just, handed to me by a good friend uh, you know
3: what's the date on that
0: uh manufactured august of 43
3: damn it beat me again <laughs> june of 45 <laughs> but no the other find the uh, the 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 vehicle find that was a steal and a half it technically wasn't a steal You bought it at a, an estate sale but just yeah um you want to share with our audience what you uh came or, yeah, did you it, stumble across it or was it posted did the word get back to you that hey there's an estate sale coming up i know the guy this is going on or was it literally just fell in your lap
0: well it literally kind of fell in my lap i mean it was a series of it, it yeah that's an estate sale they're trying to settle it was uh you know in the garage of of a uh, of a condo that needed to sell very quickly and it's just, you know, phone call after phone call. Oh, who's interested? Who can I who can I contact? And somehow my name came up. So luckily, um, you know, a lot of times my voicemail box is like always full. It takes me forever. And a lot of times when it's an out of state number, I'm like, OK, you know, it, it, mm-hmm. it kind of bumps down the priority of answering everything else, you know, kind of that I know I need to get done and it, a number I didn't even recognize. So uh, it just so happened that the, the woman's out of state and it belonged to her late husband and yeah it's a it's a 42 gpw in in really good shape
3: um for layman's term what's a gpw i know what it was but
0: well it's a it's a ford manufactured world war ii jeep early war so all the ford components are there um you know the the identification plaque on the
2: uh, on the instrument panel there
0: i mean it's it's ford yeah um doesn't doesn't have the combat rims and it looks like newer tires. You know, needs some seats, but other than that, it was purchased by this guy in nineteen eighty. Apparently, he did very well. I think he was an architect, and so he just kind of bought all these toys. And I mean, dude,
3: I mean, I know you had access to his garage, but since he had that, that would make you believe at some point inside of a, the condo itself, he probably had more World War II stuff. I mean, people don't just go out unless you are just a jeep Gene- a jeep fanatic. Maybe he was. But usually, most people don't buy a GPW unless they're either a Jeep fanatic or a World War II enthusiast.
0: Yeah, or, or especially since, especially since it's here in Texas and it was purchased and titled in California, and he and he trailered
3: it over. Yeah.
0: So, um, anyway, so yeah, really, really exciting. I mean, for people who know me, I've wanted a, 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 you know, a World War II Jeep for a long time. I I thought it would be something I could probably, hopefully by the time I retired, Mm -hmm. that would be my project. I never thought it would happen this quick and yeah, it's just, just really fortunate. And like I said, I mean, I, I I literally rescued this Jeep because none of the kids wanted it. And there was apparently like a niece or something that kind of lives in the area that's trying to get the condo sold that. The conversation was had to just take it.
3: Yeah, it was a more you know, of a nuisance than yard. a. They were looking at more of a nuisance than a potential paycheck.
0: Yes, they were going to take it to the scrapyard <sighs> just to clean the garage out.
3: So and basically, you got that for a nice price, including some stuff that basically you took off their hands, such as you know dirt yeah. bike and an old school stand up jet ski. <laughs> yeah,
0: pretty much. So. It was, it was a good day. It was a good day. I, I pick it up Friday, so I'll definitely send you some pictures We can, if you want to put them on the... Now, uh, as far as you
3: thing. know, is this simply a roller? Does it run? Is the engine in it?
0: Oh, yeah. No, I got pictures of the engine. I mean, everything's complete. Um, you know, there's a little bit of buildup of rust here and there, but um, there's she sent me a video to show that at least the motor's not seized up. Yeah. Uh, she's got the key, so, you know, she's got to mail me the key down, but... I mean, yeah. dude, there's there's nothing on that Jeep I can't I
3: can't fix. Well, I was gonna say, not only with your knowledge, but with your connection through um, professional arenas, let's just say you have access to people who work on them regularly and know where to get the parts right. for them. And exactly. so that's half the battle. Um, you know, being a mechanic is one thing, but knowing where to source the parts, reproduction or rebuilt or otherwise, that's a whole other battle. But you already have access to people who do that on a consistent basis. So I mean, you're halfway right. home when it comes to that.
0: Yeah, yeah. And of course the Jeski I have no plan to keep, so I can turn that into parts or whatever <laughs> I need for it. the Jeep, you
3: know?
0: Yep. So yeah.
3: But yeah, I'm 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 stoked. Now are you going to try to restore it back to its original service? Are you gonna do a Marine Corps Jeep? What's your what's your long goal term for it? what's your long vision for it?
0: Honestly, you know, um, I've really been on this kick lately. I have got back on the kick of, you know, the Mighty Eighth, reading all about my favorite airplane, the B-17. So I, I would love to put some Eighth, Eighth Air Force markings on it, just to it, – it's at least somewhat recognizable, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought about maybe possibly down the road, maybe making a follow-me Jeep out of it. Um, no crazy paint scheme, but but maybe the follow-me sign, maybe – you know i can get a picture of my wife and do a pinup on the back of it or something you know there you go <laughs> but um but yeah i'm just i'm happy to be the curator of of such a fine vehicle and I, and I told the i told the woman i said you know a part of your husband will always live on I mean, he's owned it since
3: 1980
0: wow so that yeah was only
3: 40 years yeah. old when he got it well 35 years old when he got a hold of it
0: right right so that's a great that find man
3: um yeah that's I know a couple people have them. Uh, my buddy Jerry's got a, a one that was quite well done. But I know I know about three or four people with them, and it's they're always fun to have, especially at an event or an event. I'll tell you where those come in real handy. If you ever do a living history event at a um, air show. Because it's a long distance from a parking lot to the display area. And to have access to somebody <laughs> with a Jeep who can haul all your crap in from that park. Because a lot of times, depending on the airport, that could be a mile and a half walk. And depending
0: uh, trust on, me, been there, done that many times.
3: You, depending and, on when you get there, you may not have the ability to take your car from point A to the display. So right. having somebody with a Jeep or an air uh, correct vehicle is definitely always a bonus. And not to mention that... That's just the other thing that, um, especially kids, but kids and uh, teenagers and just people in general, they, that's the sort of thing that really gets people's attentions during the living history displays and stuff too. Something they can touch, sit in, get their photos with. Yeah. And so that's always a, a huge, uh, great benefit to the collection. So um, let's get into it a little bit. Let's talk about the history of what happened uh, yesterday, only a few well, years back.
0: I think what I'd really like to start off with is, um, you know, our last episode about Taro, man. that, that really, I'll be honest, that really opened my eyes on how to look at history in a kind of a different way. You know, I've been, I've been taking some, some, some online courses, um, just because they're free from this mm-hmm. university that i you know, I've, I've had their newsletter. I've gotten their newsletter for a long time now years and, I thought, you know what? They offer some free courses online about American history and things like that. So I got back into it, and and one of the one of the introductions to to one of the courses I'm taking, the professor said, you know, we tend to look at history almost like a heartbeat, and we study the the those peaks, just those really interesting, you know, Pearl Harbor, Coral Sea, Midway, you know. But he said all the other stuff in between is what is what gives us. The you know, that's that's the the menial, boring stuff. That's what we need to kind of keep in mind so you can understand those peaks, you know, just those little short blips of incredible history that we just see on the timeline. It's all that stuff in between that gives it that human element. And I think our last episode really we did that when we talked about, wait a minute, when was Thanksgiving? Mm-hmm in 1943 i will like i said i will see the battle of Tarawa now from a whole nother perspective so that's how i started thinking about i mean, this episode for pearl harbor
3: yeah because it it just hit us that and same with pearl harbor i never i looking at that way never occurred to me until you just said it it's a holiday i mean yes it's not holly going on but most people consider the holiday season between thanksgiving and christmas and so the fact that Tarawa happened um, with a few days before, or, cause we we're saying, you know, with the way uh, the mail system ran, they were very persistent with it and they put a lot of um, time and effort, but the, the civilians, you know, they kind of wrote things early to make sure it got there in time. And so a lot of these guys who died on Tarawa probably had Thanksgiving letters in their pockets and here it is. W- granted, we weren't involved with the war yet per se, but you know, you're living in Pearl Harbor, you're stationed down in Pearl Harbor. Um, you may... OK, great. I just got to make it through another week and I get a little leave. I've been in, you know, I've been in the Navy for, um, uh, you know, somewhat uh, your your career sailor. Maybe you have some t- a leave coming up that you have pre-scheduled because you're lucky enough to. And then this whole thing just happens. It just looking at it that way, it just brings, like you said, it humanizes it and brings realism and life into it.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this past Saturday on the 5th, we had uh, a Pearl Harbor commemorative program right here at this museum. And we we tied it in also with a, a salute to first responders. Yeah. And I'll, I'll kind of get into that in a minute. But but one of the things I said kind of in the opening ceremony is, you know, it's very, of course, it's very important to have commemorations. It's very important to to think about these anniversaries, to make sure they're not forgotten year after year. It's very important to do that. And we all know that as, as you know, historians and living history guys. Um, We just naturally do that. But of course, this was Saturday, which was the 5th of December, because it just made sense, obviously, to have the program on Saturday, not Monday. Sure. Um, But that was okay, because I wanted to think about, and I wanted other folks to think about, December 5th, 1941, because obviously if the 7th is Sunday morning, so the 5th is Friday. How many guys were just waiting to get off? It's the last day of the duty week. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're waiting to get their pass. They're waiting to go to shore. Maybe they got a new girlfriend. Maybe they're saving up. They wanted to get this new tattoo, you know, or like <laughs> you said, it's Christmas season. Yeah. Maybe, maybe some guys went. maybe they went to shopping. And, yeah. And they bought mom and dad something for Christmas, you know, on Saturday, December 6th, 1941. You know, that that's all the stuff. I mean, when we OK, we talk about the Arizona, you know, and all, all the stuff all the ships, you know, 21 ships sunk or damaged in, in the harbor there. What went with that? What human element was sunk? Okay. A battleship graves, like 27,000 tons, like whatever. Okay. But what also went to the bomb in that Harbor? I mean, it's like this Enigma machine, like you bring up, you know, what that, that brings a little bit more of a human element. Somebody had to tell somebody to take this Enigma machine and, and dump it off somewhere at some specific date and time. So that's kind of what I want to talk about. I mean, we can say, okay, how many people died at Pearl Harbor? Okay. You know, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy that, you know, even Admiral Nimitz said that he prayed that our nation would never find us as, as unprepared as we were then. Boom. Tuesday morning, 11th, September, 2001. Here we go again. Um, But just to think about the human element, think about, you know, Pearl Harbor. So I'm asking the listeners to just, when, when you think about history, you, you, you got to put yourself then, you, you know, a lot of people kind of concentrate on all oh, FDR news. The only way we were going to get in the war, Winston Churchill was breathing down his back. And if we could just get attacked, then he could obviously, you know, convince Congress to go to war. Okay. Great stories. Uh, hindsight's always 2020, 20, but mm-hmm. get into the moment. And, and I think that's, what's really important. And, um, before I forget, cause you know, we talk about, um, uh, uh, we talk about some of the books, you know, that we've read and things like that. So now we actually, I get to show a cover of a book. This one here, Craig Nelson's Pearl Harbor. Um, if anybody's read it, Dawn We Slept, um, and, you know, it took you about 15 years to get through it, It's a, it's a great read. But this one here, Craig Nelson's Pearl Harbor, From Infamy to Greatness. This is really, to me, this has really kind of taken the torch from At Dawn We Slept, and such a a, a, a comprehensive uh, account, personal stories, uh, and, and and let's be honest, I mean, one of the things he gets into that I'd never really thought about is, um, you know, all those anti-aircraft guns going off, all those fifty calibers, you know, Dory Miller shooting up into these airplanes were heightened receiving the Navy Cross. All of those rounds that went up had to come down
3: somewhere. Mm-hmm.
0: And a lot of those rounds landed in Pearl city. Yeah. Wow. yes. And you should, you should, you've got to read this book and, and hear the little schoolgirls who dad said, uh, they closed the curtains and said, don't, whatever you do, don't look outside right now because there was pieces of civilians hanging up in the trees.
3: And we're you not know, talking people- about living in houses like we have in Florida that are reinforced with concrete and rebar in the wall. We're talking about rudimentary houses in a tropical environment no, most of them probably didn't have AC and say so they are probably built in a way right. that they can cool them quite easily through open windows or perhaps even thin walls. And to have that amount of lead flying around. Right, right. And and you know, they,
0: they've never really truly released the full the full body count because, you know, it, it the civilian the civilian counts probably a lot higher than we'd ever really want to really talk about. Because, yeah because when we think civilian okay. count
3: we think okay the the you know people who lived or worked near you know the naval base not you the know
0: contractors things like that but but no, no it, i mean
3: this stuff's going on and as you said yeah. what comes up or must goes down or what shot horizontally is going to run out of steam at some point
0: right and right and it's a small harbor yeah you know, that's not a big area from battleship road to pearl city not that far so
3: and while you're reading that book, if you want to get an idea, because early on in this book, I'm going to show you, um, it talks about the population of Hawaii at the time. One of the things I didn't know is, which kind of leads into why, look, I we kind of got in this past. Um, the thoughts and beliefs behind Japanese internment camps, that can be argued all day long, one way or the other. But if you want a... Insight into why that even came up. Read this book. It's called uh, Rising Suns* by Billy Veen. It's the Japanese-American GIs who fought for the United States in World War II. But in the beginning of this, when they're laying out the history of the E.C. and the Nisi and Hawaii and how the Hawaiian National Guard was made up, I think 85% of its manpower were um, first-generation Japanese-Americans um, whose f- family came over from Japan and the the Population of Hawaii, there were more Japanese um, ancestry, immigrants, and first generations. Um, Technically, they weren't Americans because Hawaii was still a territory. But either way, there was more Japanese on those islands than there were native Hawaiians and um, Caucasian Americans. And so that's kind of why they so quickly reacted the way they did because Pearl Harbor was attacked by Japan. A majority of the population is people of Japanese ancestry, you got to think, okay, some of them may still be communicating back home. And so what do you do? And so that's an interesting book and it really gets into the numbers, not only in Japan, but in uh, California, Oregon and Washington state, what the Japanese American populations were back then. And it really shined a whole light onto it for me. Cause you know, when we read all this stuff, you just hear what can be fit into a 30 minute TV show or in one paragraph on a topic about something completely else. But when you read something like this book or the one you're talking about, it's the nice thing about those books that are dedicated to a certain topic that spans different environments. You learn about the civilian casualties of Pearl Harbor during that time, or you learn about you know, the uh, population levels of Japanese immigrants and Japanese ancestors at that time. And I think that having that information helps definitely well round your thought process of when looking back at history, and I think it's super important.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, like I said, you you got to kind of put yourself in the time, what was going on to really, and you never fully understand it, but at least it gives you that perspective of what was the atmosphere like, what was going on around you, and and that's why I think it's important to remember. Like you said, it's it's the holiday season. Like not only was it, you know, just a tragic event that it would have been, you know, just as tragic any other time of the year, but holidays like. <laughs> you know, these guys are, I'm sure like they're, they're Christmas is coming up. Like I I can feel it already, you know, Uh, around here. I I can feel the Christmas spirit. I people just, I don't know. They just feel a little nicer. (laughs) I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just finally cooled down here in Texas, but there's, there's something in the air, you know, when, when, when Christmas is coming around, there's something in the air. And for this to happen, for this to just, you know, just a matter of hours completely change the world. Um, I just like I said, yeah. I just think it's important to to remember that. Well, and to think about it from that perspective.
3: And kind of like when we were uh, talking about with Terrell being so close to Thanksgiving, imagine how many first, second, third Christmas presents these guys have newborn babies at home. They got a one year old, a two year old, a four year old, a five year old. Because these cats, most of them, were young. But imagine how many first, second, or third Christmas presents were in the mail on the way home. Because, once again, we're talking timeline. We're talking logistics. Here it is, December you know, 4th, 5th. You just went shopping on Saturday. You just made it down to the postal yeah. exchange, whatever. You wrapped up that present for the wife or for the kids. It's in the mail. And a day later, two days later, the person who sent it is no longer with us. And so you get that present in the mail. And three days later, you get a telegram from Western Union. And it's it, tough, isn't it? as sad as and, that you know, sounds, you can always kind of flip it a little bit to try to make your yourself feel better and say, "Well, at least that person got that last physical gift that was chosen by their loved one." Whereas if it wasn't a holiday season and something happened, but you know that you're just grasping straws there. But it, I don't know. I think it's imp- not only important for maintaining history and and legacy, but before we went on, I just happened to get a message on Facebook from a long-time What's the Scuttlebutt podcast listener, um, and he asked me how I've been, hadn't heard from me a while, and um, I know he had had a cancer scare, and he's all clear, his name's R.M. Um, Roach, um, and he said he's actually listened to some past episodes, and he asked me if I had done any events this year, and I said, well, I've done two. I did one living history event, and I missed one last week, and I couldn't go to, and then I was able to do... Um, the one reenactment over at um, the Von Kessinger Express, but I told him there was a tactical event coming up in January, and he said he's getting ready to do a, an event next weekend. But we kind of got to talking about how with 2020, being living historians and reenactors and how our seasons, depending on where you live, you know, in Florida, we, we're more winter oriented because it's just too hot to be out in wool in the middle of August. But depending on where you're, you're at, most of our seasons got canceled and a lot of us use those events and the timelines those events are based upon to, to kind of drive our research, to drive our interest into looking up new stuff. And it's been a – I told him, I said, dude, it's been a hard year to keep motivated on reading up on new stuff. And I think maybe the things you and I just talked about on how to look at history in a different way, kind of personalize it or – flip your expectations on what you're looking for. Maybe those are a little keys and a little secrets to help us keep motivated, especially hopefully, you know, another month, things will start to change. 2021 rolls around. Um, but I don't know. I I think it's kind of important to find new ways to keep you interested and motivated so that you don't lose interest in, in the history and and in the hobby itself. But it's been, it's been a rough one this year. I got to say, sometimes I feel guilty I'm like, am I, am I, am I keeping up to my, my part of this? But it's just been so hard.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, the, the main thing is to just to keep it relevant and, you know, like I mentioned, the, the, the commemorative program we had here uh, on Saturday, tying it in with first responders. I think it's, it, it just coincided so well because shortly after the attack, everybody had to be a first responder. Everybody's helping bucket brigades, Mm -hmm. putting out fires and, you know, turning hospitals into, or uh, school, schoolhouses into hospitals.
3: Pickup trucks Um, into ambulances.
0: Right. Donating blood to some stranger who needs it more than you. So everybody became a first responder. And I think, you know, this is a great time to, when we commemorate Pearl Harbor, to think, to kind of keep that in the back of our head too. How many civilians had to chip in and think about today, you know, now more than ever, I think our first responders need need to know that we're, you know, that we have their six. And this is a great way to do that, to, to, to commemorate that and, and just to bring awareness to that, that, you know, they still have that inherent risk that at any moment the world can change. You know, I mean, how many people do do we talk about, you know, how many doctors and nurses that were up for 24, 36, 48 hours, maybe more after, you know, so today's December 8th, you know, they're still working probably since yesterday morning. I doubt they've stopped, you know, in 1941. So and Pearl Harbor didn't stop that, you know, um, and, and you know, reading about the rescue efforts, man, just, just read about that. Read about the divers going down into, I think it was like the Oklahoma and this inky blackness, and these just long oxygen tubes that run all the way back up and you're feeling your way through, you know, the ship. And in some cases they did find people, you know, three or four days later that found an air pocket in the ship and had been down there ever since and couldn't leave and actually got to rescue them. But, you know, those efforts were happening for months after. And a lot of times they are civilians, you know, the, the, the um, civilian contractors, the divers and things like that. So
3: Yeah, mechanic, uh, diesel mechanics to keep the uh, generators up and running to supply the oxygen to the divers. I mean, everything. And exactly. I, and I was thinking, um, you know, talking about first responders. Now, I don't know what the hospital staff numbers were prior to, to Pearl Harbor. I don't know how many people were on staff that day uh, percent-wise compared to the casualty list. But I would assume at that point when things – hit the climax i'm sure anybody within four or five miles who was a pharmacist or even a dentist was basically inscripted as being okay you have medical history come with us (laughs) Uh, first off your pharmacist bring all the medicine gauze and everything you have but other than that we need you down here you're you know dentist same with you bring whatever medicines you have whatever um bandages you have you're today you're you're a field doctor and it's just we know, and that's all. Like you were saying, things we never thought of. You know, pickup truck drivers. Okay, you're now an ambulance. um Oh, you're a diesel mechanic. Come with us. Uh, anything. Right. Oh, you're a welder. Come with us. You got a. You got an extra blowtorch. Come on. We we have guys. We need equipment. We're going to take your 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 torches. I mean, I'm sure it was a mad scramble just to find everything and anything at that point.
0: Yeah, absolutely. um You know, just just the rescue efforts, not just for people, but just you know. Anything that we can reuse, you know, towards the war effort. I mean, look at how much we had to take off the Arizona and and to to reuse. So, and I think that's what we lack today. That that right there is that missing link, you know. Of, you know, and I don't mean to sound and negative because I'm typically not a negative person, but that extra mile, that extra step, that extra handout. I think that's what the nation lacks as a whole right now. Yeah. And it probably lacked that December 6th, 1941. I'm sure it was the same way. Somebody trips and falls and goes, eh, eh, Cooper, you know, (laughs) that probably hasn't changed. You know, I mean, kids are kids. There's always mischief. There's always crime. There always will be. There always has been, but, um, what, what they got to experience then that the nation coming together Not to say that there wasn't people that were anti-war even then. Uh, We know that there was still the one Nay vote to go to war in Congress, um, you know, on December 8th. So that will always be there. But uh, I I think when we talk about the pandemic today, when when you talk about what reenactors are dealing with today and the motivation, you know, it's, it's tough to lose or it's tough to you know hold on to that motivation because when you're not on the front lines. And you get complacent. And when you get complacent, you get bored and you Mm. fill that time doing other things. But you got to stay the course. And, you know, you're going to be on the front lines again. All of our reenactors will be. Now's the time to brush up on that field manual, the officer's guide, Um, you know, uh, something, uh, a missing piece of a uniform, the knowledge. The knowledge is out there. Go, Go get it. Now is the perfect time to be studying up for your next tactical event or your next impression um
3: and if you're if you're new into the hobby now is the time to um save a couple bucks because right around christmas time and new year's eve time most of the the big vendors your uh, world war ii impressions at the front especially every year they have huge um inventory blowouts i mean you can get you know if you're trying to put together an airborne impression you can save easily uh, if you buy the pants and trousers together you can easily save a hundred bucks so you know if if you're new to the hobby or you've been considering building a second or even a third impression um well chances are if you're building a second or third impression you already know know this but if you're new to the hobby or wanting to get into it and um you're you're wandering through the the woods of um uniforms and vendors now's the time to um to keep an eye out for the deals because you'll find them
0: yeah absolutely and it's 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 worth the money you know to, to get somebody in that, that is new to the hobby um you know that's all i can say because i'm extremely new i'm not a reenactor what i do in uniform is completely different than what a lot of other reenactors do um the mission may be the same but the vehicle is, is is a little bit different for what i do as opposed to what some of the other guys do so um i am extremely new to the hobby um but not new to the uh the motivation behind you know representing the past so um you know but yeah I, i've heard i've heard a lot of people Man, i'd love to do it but it's just it, it costs too much
3: yeah well you it, know
0: any hobby does too much, dude i mean
3: talk know. to somebody you ever skied or snowboard or got right. heavy in a boating or fishing or hunting for that matter i mean i think my i found out yeah. my nephews his his deer tag in kentucky cost him 150 dollars this year yeah yeah so i mean um a lot of people say they go out hunting to about meat but i never knew the 150 fifty dollar price tag was involved but anyhow so i mean everything's mm-hmm. expensive and speaking of expensive i don't know if you guys noticed this sweet ass shirt i have on this is the official uh what's the scuttlebutt podcast k ration dinner t-shirt uh, we also have the lunch shirt as well or the supper shirt but it's the holiday season i made these a year or two back it's kind of hard to see but it it has an m1 garand on it it's our ugly christmas shirt but there's some font underneath there. And one of my favorite Christmas movies is, well, The Christmas Story. And so I, I took Ralphie's speech his letter to his teacher, if you will. I'm sorry, his, his fantasized letter to Santa. And I rephrased it. And it says, Dear Santa, all I want for Christmas is an official Springfield Armory M1 rifle, semi-automatic, chambered in .30-06 with a cherry stock, complete with eight-round m blocked Love, Ralphie. And so <laughs> you can get these on our website. Just go to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Um, you'll see a t-shirt on there. It may not be this one, but this will take you to our store for Digital 410 and you can find all our shirts. You can find the K-Ration shirts. You can find the um, WTSP Lucky Strike t-shirts, the standard green ones with the white. Basically, any of our shirts are up there. The, um, the Marine Corps helmet ones that we did with the microphone are up there, the Airborne helmet. So all those shirts are up there. But yeah, this is the one we usually sell around Christmas time. And it's you can wear these to the ugly Christmas um, sweater events, even though it's not a sweater. But tell the world that Ralphie just wants an M1 Garen for Christmas. He's no longer interested in the Red Rider BB gun. <laughs> <laughs> and real quick, as always, this episode of the What's in Your Head podcast is brought to you by... Fr- What's in your head? See that? I'm so used to doing a live stream. Uh, and we're live, so this episode of the What's the Scuba <laughs> podcast is brought to you by friends at At Computers. At Computers has been providing IT solutions for all of Southwest Florida since 2004. So, if you're in the area, you need uh, network management, give them a call 239 283 1120. Need computer fix, computer repair, laptops, tablets, what have you. Give them a call at 239 283 1120. But even if you don't live in the area, as long as you have internet, they can log in your system and help you with any of your issues. Um, Two form authentication. So, if you're a small business owner and you want to make it secure for your employees to log in at work, they can help you with that. Online backup, seven cents a gig per month. You know, hard drive failure rates about once every three years now. Hard drives don't last the 10 years they used to because people want more storage for less money. And if you haven't converted to SSD drives yet and you're still using the SATA drives, you want to back that up. And even if you're on SSD drive, just because you're on SSD doesn't mean you're uh, safe from viruses, encryptions, or computer theft. That's why online backup is super important, especially if you're a business owner. You've got QuickBooks on your machine. you got some boilerplate templates, Word files, spreadsheets, whatever you send out. Get that stuff backed up online. Give them a call at 239-283-1120. And if you are a small business owner and you want to advertise on the Digital 410 Network, whether it's the What's a Scuttlebutt podcast or any of the other podcasts, email us for amazingly low rate per episode advertising fees at info at d-410.com. Jeff, I'm going to say this was a smashing success for our first live stream with the, um, the, with the exception of me saying the wrong podcast name, but... For those of you who downloaded this podcast at WTSPWorldWar2.com, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere fine podcast can be found. Stick around after this break. Um, a few years back, a friend of mine who's been working on radio for like 30 years gave me an interview with a lady who was like six or seven during Pearl Harbor. And so that interview will come up. I, you won't hear me because I, I was in high school in 1994. Actually, I was in middle school in 1994 um, and on my way to high school. So the voice will be different. It's my buddy Stan who was interviewing this person back for radio back in the 90s. So um, stick around for that. And you can get a firsthand account of a woman who was alive and was there during Pearl Harbor. But for those of you following us and watching us right now on YouTube, thanks so much. Uh, Thanks for hanging out. Morgan Long, longtime OG five member of the podcast. He's been joining in. And even if you didn't watch us live, this show will be up on YouTube for in perpetuity and uh, we'll share it on the page. But thank you guys so much. Jeff, where can people find you?
0: Uh, Well, I quit the whole Facebook thing, but so just at Jeff cop said on Instagram
3: would be good sounds like a plan yeah, yeah i
0: i have a closing thought go ahead. um b- before we go uh this is this is uh, from i just wanted to take a quote from this book that this is uh, a letter or, or part of a speech that uh, fdr was actually supposed to give on the 13th of april 1945 so for those who who realize the importance of the day before that was the day fdr passed away the 12th so he never got to give this speech. And it was about, of course, the the war is winding down. And I just think it's relevant to today. Um, And how we should never make sure that this happens again. So quote, today, we are part of the vast Allied force, a force composed of flesh and blood and steel and spirit, which is today destroying the makers of war, the breeders of hatred in Europe and in Asia. We as Americans do not choose to deny our responsibility. Nor do we intend to abandon our determination that within the lives of our children and our children's children, there will not be a third world war. We seek peace, enduring peace, more than an end to war. We want an end to the beginnings of all wars. I'd have loved to have heard him say those words.
3: And on that note, we will get with you guys here in about a week. And thank you guys for hanging out with us for the first live stream episode. This has been a Digital 410 production. (laughs) Look what I found, dear. On May 5th, 1945, Elsie Mitchell shouted these words back to her husband as she and five teenage students approached an oddity they had found in a half-buried late-season snowbank in Blythe, Oregon someone shouted that it was a balloon and Archie Mitchell remembered that he had heard stories of Japanese balloons being spotted off the west coast he yelled back for them not to touch it but it was too late the explosion shook the park area and by the time Archie reached them Elsie and all five students were laying around a one-foot crater left by the balloon Elsie's dress was on fire Archie tried to put it out with his bare hands, but could not. Elsie and the four students were killed immediately by the blast. The fifth survived only a few minutes. They had no way of knowing it. But 26-year-old pregnant Sunday school teacher Elsie Mitchell and her five students, who were all on their way to a Saturday church picnic, had just become the only wartime casualties on the American continent due to an enemy action in World War II. Elsie Mitchell, Jay Gifford, Edward Engine, Sherman Shoemaker, Dick Patsky, Joan Patsky.
4: You know, there are not too many eyewitnesses left to what happened. On Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, but one such woman is with us right now. It is an honor and a pleasure to have uh, Helen Hull on the phone. Hi, Helen Hi there. welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's very fun, much fun to be on
4: the show. you know what? I read the article and i 'm amazed at your memory of that uh, of the the eve and the morning of what happened in, with at, at Pearl Harbor. Well, and it, it is a, a vivid memory for you, isn't it? Oh, it's
1: clearly etched in one's mind. Yes,
4: indeed. That that evening, you and your husband were out, and it was a beautiful night.
1: Oh, it was one of those very calm, serene nights. And we have been to, to a military base, uh, Schofield Barracks, for a dinner dance. And the road going home took us right by the shoreline of Pearl Harbor, and then through Waikiki, mm-hmm.
4: and you—you yeah. you you were, you, you, were, you were civilians, right, on the island. You yes. were working for the uh, Red Cross.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: And that morning, uh, you at the time you had a you had a five year old daughter, and you guys were uh, sitting down to breakfast.
1: Um, a friend of ours who happened to be engineering officer aboard the Black battleship Tennessee came in the yard to return some tools, and um, we were standing there talking to him. Phone rang, and my husband went to answer it. And the the man called after him and said, Hey, if that's my wife, tell her I'm on my way back. And a minute or two later, my husband came to the window. He says, Hey, that's not a practice dive bombing out there at Pearl. It's uh, the Japanese are attacking us. So, of course, this man took off in a hurry and picked up his carpool, and they were strafed on their way out to Pearl Harbor. And um, my husband took off, and I didn't see him for two days. (laughs) And then he phoned back in the afternoon and said uh, they expect a landing.
4: They expected the, the Japanese to actually land on the island.
1: Yeah, they thought that was a possibility because <clears throat> they put practically their whole air complement out, out of commission. And so he said, pack the car with this, and this. his father-in-law was also living with us. And so I had the responsibility for a little child and an elderly gentleman.
4: (laughs) What is going through your head when uh, somebody is telling you, and you've got a five-year-old girl, it's Sunday morning, you're at at breakfast, your husband goes off, and you're being told the Japanese are bombing you? What's going through your head?
1: You don't believe it. (laughs) No, uh, I don't know. I must have been awful dumb or something, but I began thinking, now what have I got to do? What
4: should I do? Um, Because I read in the article, didn't you, uh, after the the bombing started and it started getting into the afternoon, uh, you thought about popping a roast in the oven, didn't you? Yes,
1: I did. I thought (laughs) we might lose electricity. That's usually what happens sometimes. So I thought, well, the roast isn't going to do us any good raw, so I stuck it in the oven.
4: Now, it also said that uh, you went, uh, once the bombing had begun, you went to a a vantage point where you could actually see what was going on.
1: Yes, it was just a house above us. We could see... um, we could see the planes diving there at Pearl and the Hickam Field, which is right next to Pearl. Um, and we could see the black smoke, which we afterwards found out was coming from the Arizona, and
4: one of two other places where there was smoke. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they, the planes were flying right over your head, too, weren't they? As they yeah. were circling around to do some more bombing, they were going right over you.
1: They went directly over so low that we could see the rising sun
4: on their wings. That had to be terror. That had to be absolute fear. Or was it curiosity, or what? um, We didn't quite believe it. It was
1: almost like seeing a movie. And we stood there on uh, the slopes of Diamond Head, and there was this oil freighter trying to make it into into Honolulu Harbor. And uh, one plane had peeled off and was dive-bombing it, and we'd see it go down, and then this great geyser of water come up, and they, that plane would circle around and come back and try again. And those poor <laughs> people on that, that ship, on that uh, freighter, uh, they were just like sitting ducks. But the they, uh, plane missed
4: it every time. How long uh, did the uh, did the attack last? I mean, how much uh, time wise from the first notice that the planes were attacking until it ended? How how long of a time period was there?
1: Um, uh, I'm wasn't aware of time very much, sure. but I I think uh, I would say two hours.
4: Two hours worth of straight attack.
1: Well, they sent in different. Um uh, they had certain planes that were to go in in such and such a way, and others were to follow and take care of this, and somebody else from somewhere else was to bomb something else.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And they, they came in waves.
4: Well, you, you had to be aware of time. You had a roast in the oven. So
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that took me a couple of hours to come to it on that.
4: <laughs> now, working for the Red Cross mm-hmm. like you did, uh, did they call you into uh, action to go and uh, take a look at the aftermath that was going on down there to help uh, some of the people?
1: No, we didn't touch any people. We were um, only concerned with the getting the proper uh, surgical dressings to them. Mm-hmm. And that's what I had been trained to do. Where they trained a bunch of us to take charge, one person every other week on a certain day, and I would just happen to be scheduled on December eighth. And they had moved the headquarters for the Red Cross from downtown Honolulu deep into Nuuanu Valley, where it was a little safer. And I got there, and we set to work, turning out surgical dressings, and then. After a few days, we realized that um, uh, supplies of that nature could come in from the West Coast. And so then we began training for other things where we could be of more direct service. I went into the Gray Lady Service.
4: How long did you uh, stay uh, as a resident on uh, the Hawaiian Islands and at Pearl Harbor? How long were you, did you stay there?
1: Uh, you know, how long did I live you, there? Yeah,
4: how long did you live there following the attack?
1: Um, well, let's see. The attack came in 41, and uh, I left in 93.
4: Oh, so you, you lived there for quite some time uh, then? I
1: think it was 57, 58 years.
4: Wow. Wow. Uh, no,
1: well, the, um, I had. Wait a minute. I had um, gone there in 35, my husband and I.
4: It had to be uh, quite a couple of days there. If you were uh, expecting to actually be invaded by the Japanese, how long did it take before uh, you knew that that wasn't going to happen?
1: Oh, we knew they'd attack that day. They ex- we expected it uh, that first day. That's why my husband told me I had to get out of the house and take the.
4: Yeah, where did you guys go?
1: We went to um, a co-worker's home, uh, a co-worker of my husband's at the Board of Water Supply, uh, to his home. It was up on a hill, uh, Willamina Rise, and um, we were fairly close to this Palolo Valley, and um, we were all assembled there. The, his wife and. Me and my father-in-law and my daughter and their two children.
4: And how long was it to before you were able to go back to your own home?
1: Next day. Oh, really? The very next yeah. day? They told us, the men said that if the landing was attempted, they expected it that night. And if the landing was attempted to, they'd phone us, they'd know about it. And we were to go immediately to the headwaters of Palolo Valley and stay there until we were captured by the Japanese or the
4: men came to get us. So you were actually, you were actually running through your mind that there was the good possibility that you would be captured by the Japanese? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And, we, oh, man, <laughs> that, that, that had to be absolutely mind-boggling.
1: Well, I suppose it was, and yet you were more concerned with what you should be doing and uh, how best to do this or plan for that?
4: Do you think you'd... I think I think the the biggest thing would be uh, you know with with your little girl there. Yeah, yeah
1: mm-hmm.
4: I mean, that had to be uh, first and foremost in in your in your thought, a five year old girl.
1: Yeah Well, um, of course they were uh, they began immediately evacuating people, sending co- um, convoys back to the mainland. But they took the military dependents first. But we did finally put her name on a on a clipper ship that went once a clipper plane, uh, once a week. Wow. And uh, But all of the VIPs went on that first, you know, and it was um, really two or three months before her name came to the top of the list.
4: Wow, this is unbelievable. You know, and as I said at the beginning of this, there are very few... Eyewitnesses to this uh, day in history left. I mm-hmm. certainly hope that you have uh, uh, recorded and cataloged uh, your memories of this for uh, future generations.
1: Oh. <laughs> well, uh, what I did do was at the, at the request of a friend who thought it was valuable, and I said, Oh, don't be crazy. And she kept at me, and so finally I thought, Well, all right. So I did sit down and write just about uh, the war, and I took it from 41 to 45.
4: Uh, Speaking of that, after that started us, our involvement in World War II, what did you do during the war?
1: Um, Well, as soon as they had um, supplies coming in from the mainland, I stopped the surgical dressings and got trained for the Grey Lady service in um, the hospital.
4: You know, I'm looking at a I'm looking at a picture of you that was uh, obviously taken back during that time. You were a pretty sexy looking lady there back in those days.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't say that. You were a no. very
4: beautiful woman. <laughs> you got you had yourself a little figure on you there.
1: Oh yes. <laughs> Once upon a time, maybe.
4: <laughs> <laughs> you still are a beautiful woman. This is a wonderful picture of you on the uh, front page of the Naples Daily News. And uh, Helen, I want to thank you for spending some time with us.
1: Well, it was my pleasure. I just want to say one thing. That flag that is in front of me yes is the Hawaii state flag.
4: It looks almost like the British flag. It
1: is. It was modeled after that.
4: And so that was the Hawaiian state flag, Mm -hmm. and, of course, the uh, stars and stripes behind you.
1: We fly them both, and the photographer just pulled them down and said, Here, (laughs) do it this way.
4: (laughs) Helen, best of health to you. Thank you for calling.
1: Bye-bye. Aloha.